Welcome to Pioneering Politicos. Today's guest is Andrew Wan, the former National Youth Director of Andrew Yang's presidential campaign, a co-founder of the Young Americans Coalition for Unity, and a rising freshman at Cornell University. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'll start the interview by asking a question I ask all of my guests. What motivated you to become politically active? Yeah, so for me, it was actually a really, um, I guess, spontaneous story um, that, that I started getting involved in politics, where um, in the middle of my sophomore year, that's that was about two and a half years ago, I think now, um, I started, I was in actually a class with one of my friends, and the presidential um, election campaigns had just started popping up left and right. Um, and at one point, I came upon this dude named Andrew Yang. Um, through an Instagram advertisement that was just some ridiculous rap video and at the time I thought it was the most you know comedic and stupidest thing ever because it was really silly and it was kind of you know cringy at the same time um, but in that moment of boredom and entertainment I decided to you know look more into this person named Andrew Yang um, and I started looking into some of his policies and stuff um, which at first glance did really sound quite ridiculous to me um, but as I, you know, as I always do with anything that I tend to do, I, I fell into like a wormhole of like Wikipedia searches and stuff about Andrew Yang um, and eventually said, hey, you know, this, this, this dude's kind of cool and I might want to work for him. Um, and that's kind of where it took off from there, where I started seeing, you know, a lot of the stuff that he was talking about during his presidential campaign um, that, that I wanted to support. So that's where I really started getting into politics. Before that, you know, I, I you know, didn't even think about politics at all, to be honest. <laughs> How did you become the National Youth Director for Andrew's presidential campaign, and what did that role entail? Yeah, so I started as an, uh, like a volunteer on their campaign, you know, when I first found about him, I was kind of like, hey, you know, I, I kind of want to support this guy. Um, so I joined their team as a volunteer um, email response team member where, you know, we'd respond to emails and stuff. You know, people obviously send a lot of questions to campaigns um, and I was part of that team that would respond to those. Um, and there was one day, you know, we got an email from, you know, a fellow student like me that was saying, hey, uh, why don't we have a group of volunteers that are just, you know, focused on young people? Um, and I brought this up to um, like the volunteer coordinator at the time and I was like, hey, you know, that this would be a great idea. Um, and from that moment, we started thinking about creating a youth-oriented um, project. Um, in its initial phases, it was called the Student Campaign um, Internship Program or something like that. It was it was called SKIP. Um, I've gotten a lot better at acronyms since then. <laughs> um, but basically, me and a few other colleagues, we, you know, volunteers, we started to work together to build out a youth organizing branch of the campaign. Um, and that's where we built out Youth for Yang. So around October, um, they, they put me on as their national youth director to run Youth for Yang um, alongside a team of, you know, other campaign staffers, our distributed team um, with uh, our distributed organizing director and our campus organizer to work together to build out uh, Youth for Yang. And with our team of volunteers, we, we set out to work to engage young people to support Andrew Yang. Interesting. So I also noticed that you used Discord to organize a group of over a thousand Yang supporters and that you then hosted a Reddit AMA after the campaign ended. Yep. So do you think campaigns can reach a younger portion of the electorate by embracing new forms of technology such as Reddit and Discord? Yeah, definitely. I think um, the difficulty with reaching younger audiences is that there's a very fine line 
um, between pandering and actually genuine interaction. Um, because as, as we know these days, you know, a lot of politicians tend to try and pander to their constituents, especially certain demographics, um, where they'll try and say, all right, I'm trying to target, you know, the youth vote. So I'm going to do something that the young, the youngins will like, they'll, they'll try and do something, um, that's out of their comfort zone, obviously. Um, but to young people obviously comes off as, you know, cringy sometimes. Um, the key, I really think, is optimizing the use of these new social media platforms like, like we said, Reddit, Discord, and TikTok especially. TikTok has, you know, really jumped into spotlight lately, um, where politicians can find a way to use these social platforms in a genuine manner without, you know, appearing as if they're pandering to the population, which is obviously a really difficult balance right there. I'm fascinated by the ingenuity of Andrew Ng's campaign platform, and I want to explore that for a couple of minutes. Mm -hmm. So I'll start off with a broad question about the platform. What is human-centered capitalism? Yeah, so at the time, you know, um, uh, just a brief disclaimer beforehand, um, whatever I say in this, uh, you know, interview is not necessarily representative of the views of Andrew Yang or his campaigns himself. Um, and also, I only worked on his presidential campaign, um, anything that I say like is mostly relevant to that i did not follow his new york mayoral campaign very well um so anything that i know about you know his campaign policies are mainly from his 2020 campaign and may not apply to his current views um but at least you know from what i understood you know i thought something about human-centered capitalism was really interesting was the fact that um it was a interesting way to balance um basically you know, there's the common phrase of there's no ethical consumption under capitalism, um, where I've found that, you know, human centered capitalism is an attempt at making it ethical, um, where we can create an economic system that provides opportunities for people to, um, you know, actually benefit from it rather than, you know, support large corporations. So human centered capitalism is really, you know, self-explanatory in the sense that it says human centered where we have to find a way to make capitalism focused on benefiting the humans and the individuals that are involved in our system the workers involved rather than only supporting the large corporations and the people at the top that are making the most out of you know human labor this question will be a bit long-winded yep. uh, recent polls have shown that the majority of americans believe that the government should increase its role in providing for the welfare of its citizens but other polls have also shown that the majority of Americans support capitalism. To me, this su suggests that neither the Reaganomic vision of deregulation and reduced taxes, nor the democratic socialist vision of government-controlled markets is supported by most Americans. But human-centered capitalism, on the other hand, seems to be the perfect middle ground between these economic policy extremes. Mm -hmm. So do you think this is a place of unity that potentially could unite both Democrats and Republicans behind a shared vision? or maybe at least just serve as common ground for future economic policies? Um, I, that's a definitely a really great question. Um, there's, there's a lot to discuss about that. And I think, um, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm all about unity and bipartisanship and stuff like that. And I, I, I do see an opportunity uh, for middle ground there. Um, the only thing is that, you know, the, the concept, the phrase of human-centered capitalism is not, you know, your household terminology yet. Um, and it's not something that a lot of people really know about. You know, everyone knows, you know, capitalism, everyone knows communism. 
Um, those are the two the two economic buzzwords that everyone hears about left and right these days. Um, and I think it's going to take a lot to find you know an economic system that is not only you know something that people can agree with, but also you know tested and and proven to work. Um, and unfortunately, those two things you know tend to go back and forth where. You want to test it, but you need people to support it. But before you can get people to support it, they say you have to test it. Um, so I think it's really about people being willing to take political and economic risks to try and address these issues that we have today, um, where we just have people that are satisfied with the status quo, or we have people that are too dissatisfied with the status quo. Um, and, and we can't find that opportunity to try something new. So I think that's, that's the key to really hit there. Interesting. My next question is about one of Andrew Yang's most innovative policies, UBI. So what is universal basic income and what are some arguments for UBI? Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So um, at least um, in its origins of you know, what, what Yang was talking about in his 2020 presidential run, um, you know, universal basic income was kind of the forefront of you know, a lot of different discussions in the sense that it was viewed as extreme on, you know, a lot of different viewpoints. A lot of conservatives would argue that's giving away free money. Why would you do that? Um, and a lot of Democrats were often saying, you know, why would you give money to people that don't need it? Why is this money also going to the rich? Um, and I think the unique thing about a universal basic income is the simple fact that it is universal. Um, I obviously have, you know, thoughts and I, I don't, you know, I'm not qualified to discuss, you know, deep into policy. That's not my field yet. I'm hoping to study, study that in college. But, um, you know, universal basic income is conceptually, I think, you know, a great idea, an opportunity to expand into. Um, but unfortunately, in, in how complex um, our political system is here in the United States, it's it's going to take a lot of different holes to implement um, just because of the way, you know, our welfare system is set up, our government system is set up um, and and in how hard it's going to be to actually get money to every person universally uh, without people trying to, you know, abuse a system or something like that. So there's there's a lot of holes that I think that still need yet to be filled. Um, but once again, like I said, um, it's about if someone is willing to take that risk and if, you know, a 51% majority is willing to take a risk on universal basic income, I think that's, that's a trial that people, you know, eventually should be willing to test out. So now let's transition over to your efforts to unite Gen Z. Broadly speaking, why is unity and bipartisanship important? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think one of the biggest things that um, I think we've seen in these past, you know, this past year and a half or so with the election um, is obviously, you know, the United States is becoming more and more polarized as we see every day. We had the riot at the White House. Um, we have, you know, in general, people being unwilling to have a political discussion anymore. Um, and it's and it's only gotten worse. Um one of the craziest things that I noticed um, when I was working on the Yang campaign was that um, we actually tended to have more moderate Republicans support Yang than we could, you know, have a discussion with, um, you know, Bernie supporters or people uh, that were slightly more left compared to Yang. 
Um, and, and that was a really interesting phenomenon to me where, you know, moderate Republicans were more willing to have that discussion about, you know, a Democrat rather than other, you know, people who might be Democrats, might be Democratic Socialists. Um, and I think there's a big problem in the sense that, you know, if we're not willing to have these discussions, then then nothing will ever get done. And one of the reasons why I think, you know, our increasing polarization is one, if one of the biggest problems, if not the biggest problem um, facing the United States specifically today is because if no one can agree on anything, nothing will ever get done. Um, you know, I think climate change is a very big issue. Um, but if we can't have a discussion with people who don't believe in climate change and somehow, you know, talk to them about why climate change is important, we're never going to get anything done on climate change. If, you know, we think economics, you know, if we need to fix our economy and one side just completely doesn't want to listen to the other side, uh, you know, nothing will ever get done. And I think that's also a problem on both ends where, you know, Politically, unfortunately, you can't please everyone. There are always going to be people with differing opinions. Um, but there needs to be an opportunity to say, hey, I'm willing to listen to you. And if you're willing to listen to me, let's talk about, you know, this issue. Let's talk about a way to solve this issue. Uh, not from a purely political standpoint, you know, as a way, you know, oh, if I pass this policy, I'm going to be guaranteeing my reelection. Or if I pass this policy, I'm going to get more money and more support from my party rather addressing it from you know your constituents who you represent you know most of the time people you know if you're elected into office you are voted by you know the people that you represent um but once people get into power in politics you know they they start to fall away from the people they represent and rather towards the party that they represent um and and party politics has become you know such a large issue that you know, simply changing your mind on one thing brands you as a traitor one day um, and flipping back to, you know, one side brands you as a savior the next. Um, where we saw people and, you know, both parties, um, we have like these phrases such as like Republican in name only, um, where, you know, they're branded by Republicans, other Republicans, that they're not a true Republican or branded Democrats that are branded by other Democrats as not a true Democrat. Um, where they're being purely defined by, you know, how well they align with the party's agenda, uh, which is definitely a, a really big problem. I'm, I'm starting to ramble a little bit here, but um, there's just, you know, that, that attachment to your party is such a big problem that we need to address. And by, you know, focusing on young people, now back to the, back to the point, um, the reason why, you know, I think it's so important that we need to share this message with our generation in particular is that we have such powerful ways using social media to share information. Um, and I and I truly do believe that there is an opportunity for us to share, you know, not only like this information through social media, but rather creating opening open spaces for discussion. Um, and helping to create more open minds and open hearts in the, in the future. This is a bit of a tangent, but do you think that the name of human-centered capitalism could actually be a double-edged sword in the sense that capitalism attracts Republicans, but also on the far left, it seems to be something that they are very opposed to. So maybe it's kind of allowing you to get more moderate support, but at the same time, you're losing the more extreme factions, of the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
So I think there's a there's a weird, you know, gray zone where between the the phrases of being a moderate and being bipartisan. Um because I think, you know, we have to make clear that being bipartisan doesn't make you a moderate. Being a moderate doesn't make you bipartisan. Um, it, it's kind of like that squares and rectangles analogy. So like, you know, stuff like that, where, you know, if you're bipartisan, that doesn't necessarily mean that you bend your knee um, fully to the other party. And that doesn't mean, you know, you say, all right, I'm going to get half of what I want and you're going to get half of what you want. Um, I think there's still, you know, if you if you brought up the example of, you know, let's say one person wants to, um, you know, let's say person A wants to kill person B and person C says, no, don't do that. And then they say, all right, let's compromise. You can kill half of them. Like, it, it doesn't make any sense to do that. That is not what bipartisanship is about. So I think with human centered capitalism, there has, you know, it's it's not, you know, a fully recognized, fully fleshed out economic theory, you know, as much as, you know, Yang had had fleshed it out to be yet. Um, but I think there's a lot of space to build it into something that is bipartisan and ethical um, and can allow for, you know, people of all different political viewpoints to agree at some certain point that, you know, this works for people. This supports our country and, you know, supports the members that participate in our economy. And this also provides for those who are under supported by our economy. So I'm going to go back to talking about unity. So how can Gen Z find common ground? We're, we're you know, there's there's a lot of. A lot of answers and a lot of questions um, that there are about that is because, you know, on an individual level, I have definitely been able to talk with people and, and find unity or at least acceptance of other people's viewpoints where, you know, yes, we may accept we have different opinions and different viewpoints and either accept that, you know, we have different viewpoints and they're not really going to change or, you know, we can accept, you know, we have different viewpoints, but we also find a solution that we both agree on. Um, so at the individual level, it's really not that difficult if you're willing to have that discussion. Uh, however, on a generational level, that's where the going gets tough. Um, you know, as humans, we tend to, you know, mob mentality is a huge thing where we like to be in our own, like, tribe as a group. Um, and we can see that through, you know, just simply the creation of political parties. People of similar beliefs like to be with others of similar beliefs. Um, and that's probably the like the two-party system that we have and that combined in human nature is probably, you know, the biggest problem that we are going to face if we want to build, you know, that open dialogue in politics. Um, where, frankly, it's probably impossible to have that in a two-party system. Now, with, you know, if we were to have a multi-party system, you know, no, no political system is perfect. We've seen that throughout history. You know, even in multi-party systems, there are always still problems. Um, but I feel that with the political, like, circumstances that the United States is in, a, a multi-party system would greatly assist um, in slowing down polarization, at least, if not, you know, stopping it for a good amount of time as people, you know, are able to explore more individually what they believe. And if we can break down viewpoints to an individual belief, like I said, it's easier to come to agreeance when you're more individual than you are when you are pressured to align with a political party or a whole group.
What is the Young Americans Coalition for Unity and what's the origin story behind the organization? Yeah, so um, with the Young Americans Coalition for Unity, it was really, you know, conceptualized at the end of the Yang campaign where we had a group of, you know, a thousand or something people that we'd worked on with the Youth for Yang campaign. Um, and, you know, we wanted to build something out of that. We were going to say, we were thinking, you know, we can send them to, you know, other youth organizations. But, you know, we had people that weren't Democrats, that weren't, were, were Republicans or they were Libertarians. Um, and, you know, we wouldn't say to these people, all right, you supported Yang, go be a Democrat. Because uh, that's not how it works. People's viewpoints are, are different. They're flexible. Um, so basically what we said is, all right, let's find if there's, you know, a bipartisan organization just, you know, for young people, by young people that is out there. Um, and at the time, there was none. Um, so we said, all right, let's make it ourselves. And that's what we built out of the YACU. Um, at the current moment, the YSU is uh, undergoing a merger process with the Institute for Youth and Policy. Um, they're also a nonprofit organization just founded a little bit after us, um, but has had the opportunity to, you know, cast the wider net with, you know, some of the connections they've had. Um, and our board has decided to, you know, have, have discussions with them and merge with them as well, um, which we view as, you know, this is a great opportunity for us to, you know, connect our resources in an, in an act of, you know, unity here, uh, where we're working with other young people that are committed to a very similar uh, mission. You know, they're also focused on engaging youth in politics. Um, and the YSU will continue as a project within YIP um, to to focus more on that unity and bipartisanship aspect. So I'm really excited about that further development. That sounds awesome. So I'll ask one final question that I ask every guest. What are your plans for the future? And do you have any political aspirations? Yeah, definitely. So um, this fall, I'm heading to Cornell University in the College of Human Ecology to pursue an undergraduate degree in uh, healthcare policy. Um, I, I do have, you know, large aspirations in the sense that I'm hoping to um, pursue a pre-med and pre-law program as I'm interested in the intersection of health law and, and medicine, like medicine and law. So it's healthcare policy. That's why I'm studying that. Um, and I, I hope to pursue a career initially in medicine um, as, you know, that that's been my lifelong, you know, interest where ever since I was a kid, I've always been more interested in in STEM stuff. I've, you know, never really started in politics until, like I said, halfway through sophomore year. Um, but I always also want to you know continue some of the work I've done in the political sphere. Um, so I definitely do hope to continue, you know, working in some, you know, political stuff here and there, left and right, not necessarily in a campaign or more in like the nonprofit sphere. I'm not sure yet. Um, but there's but there's a lot of, you know, things that I'm interested in uh, that I'm hoping to be able to work with. Well, your career goals sound fascinating. And thank you for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Definitely. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Today's episode was hosted and produced by Jackson Lancer. And to keep up to date about the podcast, follow us on Instagram or Spotify at Pioneering Politicus.